You're listening to the Root and Stem Podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. In this episode, we hear from John Corbett, a Cree computer programmer, digital artist, and professor at Simon Fraser University. John has notably created a short film out of digital beadwork renderings using portraits of his family titled Four Generations, which is screened in the Indigenous Arts Center in Gatineau, as well as the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., He's also designed a personal programming language that reflects his cultural values called CreeSharp, which mimics C-Sharp, a popular programming language from Microsoft. Let's hear from John as he speaks on the presence of colonialism in computerware and computer spaces and his endeavor to instill his indigenous values in his work. John Corbett, the Tsikasun, Nia Apatawa, Kosafan, Nia Nahayana Peo, Akwanakana Peo, Miskuchiswa Skagano Kuchinia. So my name is John Corbett. Uh, I am a Métis. Uh, I belong to the Métis Nation of Alberta. And my cultural heritage uh, on my dad's side is uh, Cree and Soto uh, through my grandmother and English through my grandfather. And on my mother's side, I'm predominantly Ukrainian. And I am currently, I currently reside in Kelowna, British Columbia. It's where I grew up, even though I was born in Edmonton. And I'm an assistant professor now at uh, Simon Fraser University. Uh, in the School of Interactive Art and Technology. So I started programming in Apple Basic when I was nine. So that's going back to the late 70s, like 1979, 1980. And the way programming was introduced to me was there are three essential kind of ideas that went into the programming language. And one was prompting a user for some sort of input. So what is your name, right? And you would type your name in. Uh, and then responding with a hello, and then output your name. So variables. So I have to take your input, put it into a variable. So that was the first one. The other thing was loops. Computer does a series of loops. So if I wanted to print out a series of letters across the screen, I wouldn't say print A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, you know, I wouldn't do those string of letters. I would do a loop that would say print out each letter in succession, and it would just loop through all the letters and print them out onto the screen. Uh, so there was loops, and then there was conditionals. And a conditional was just a decision. If I prompted a user for, what did you have for breakfast? And you had two options. You had toast or you had cereal. If I choose toast, then I need I need a plate and a butter knife and some butter. And if I choose a cereal, then I need a bowl and a spoon and milk, right? And so he's had clothes, but I have a choice to make. So with those three ideas, those the, to me, those are just kind of the three, and technically four if you include the input, but variables, loops, and conditions. Uh, and so I would write in my, I realized at that point that everything we do is a program. Everything I do in a daily life is a program. When I get up in the morning and I get dressed, there's a, I have a, a routine that I do. I put on socks, I put on pants, I put on a shirt. And each one of those has a, has a condition. Do I wear the blue shirt today or the red shirt? I have a decision to make, right? And so what I would do in school is um, in language arts classes, grade five, uh, so I would be 11. Uh, every day we had to write down like a little journal entry uh, in our little notebooks, and I would write it in code. Uh, so I would, you know, I'd write a program that, uh, although it probably wouldn't work on a computer, it, it asked these things. What color pants are you wearing today? Did you wear the corduroys or did you wear the blue jeans, right? 
and uh, I would write it out as a program. And so I would program. I just thought it was fun. I thought it was interesting. Um, and so to understand programming, you know, at a very basic level is uh, just a reflection of what you do every day in life. Everything we do is computational. And that's one of the things that I try to uh, explain to people is I don't start with, let's define computationality or computational uh, things that are computational, computational thinking, right? Um, we already do it. We don't need to define it. And you just have a natural understanding of it. Uh, and so when it, but when it's framed in a sense of when you can embody it and you reflect it from the daily routine that you do, the day itself is a routine, the whole day beginning to end. I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Tomorrow, I'm going to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The next day, I might skip breakfast. There's a condition there. Do I have breakfast? No. No, I'm going to skip it today. But I still have lunch and dinner. So there's a looping series there, right? Days go by. Every day is, for the most part, the same as the previous day. There's routines that we do every day. And so those things loop. And then we have a series of conditions. And we store data uh, that we encounter throughout the day. I have an appointment this afternoon. So that scheduled item gets stored in my memory until the event actually happens. And then once the event happens, it you know goes off and disappears. And it gets replaced with a another scheduled event. Um, and so that, that variable of whatever is on the schedule is continually changing as well. So if I was to explain to somebody uh, what programming is, it's, uh, that's how I would explain it. As I, I would first just let you know, it's about um, the things that you do every day are computational. And so it's understanding what are the, at, at the very basic level from a computer standpoint, what is the computer expecting? And those three things will get you through 90% of programming. Colonialism and, and how it represents in the system is a difficult thing to identify sometimes because a lot of people think of the computer as being agnostic if it's not tied culturally. But when you think of computer programming in particular, um, a majority of the programming that happens today is in uh, global English, right? So we use English, but English is by default uh, a colonial. We've evolved uh, or pulled it from um, colonial contact. And so being forced to use English in order to program the computer is a colonial activity because I'm not allowed to use another language, like natural language. I can't use Cree to program the computer. I'm forced to use English. And so there's this natural displacement of culture and uh, what it inherently uh, finds important are these aspects of our culture and our society today that just have become kind of the go-to, right? A, a secondary component of the colonialism that's kind of built into computers is time. Uh, in Indigenous ideas of time and concepts around time differ from the way Western society does. Uh, and computers in particular, computers are primarily focused on efficiency and making, you know, if you're coding, you're coding to a way to make the computer be as fast as possible, to produce things as fast as possible. But that is not necessarily how I do it. So the, one of the very first programs I built that was around my cultural uh, relationship with doing is when I do beadwork. Beadwork is a very time-consuming process, and there's a lot of things that go into it. So I wrote a program that would bead patterns for me. But when I was going and then beading these patterns, 
I'm like, yeah, I thought about the code that I wrote. I made it to be efficient. I wanted to produce this pattern as quickly as possible. But it didn't reflect how I physically would be. And it didn't include this time concept, right? So the computer can produce it in a second, you know, two seconds, three seconds to produce an image or a pattern. Uh, and it, that takes me 36 hours <laughs> to be, right? Um, so this relationship to time is, is asynchronous. It's, it's, it's out of proportion. And uh, so what I did is I would slow the program down to be uh, a little bit more realistic in terms of time. And if I wanted to produce a pattern, I have to wait just the same way as if I'm putting it together with needle and thread, I have to wait. That image just doesn't come, right? And, and so it gives it more opportunity to think. To me, that's reflective of, more reflective of uh, cultural concepts of time where the culture is uh, given precedence over the needs of the computer. The computer wants to do these do these instructions as quickly as it wants to, and I'm preventing it from doing that because I have control over that timing mechanism. Uh, so those those are the two main things. Those aren't the only things. Uh, a lot of the structures that we have, um, naming conventions, the way instructions are processed in a linear format. In Cree in particular, we do a lot of, um, there's non-linear storytelling, so events that happen concurrently or uh, tangentially to one story from another story, uh, and they overlap, are structures that are not mirrored in a computational sense they can't they don't they can't run that way um, they still have to execute instructions in a linear manner from line to line uh, for the most part uh, and uh, it, that doesn't reflect you know in some cultural teachings um, and so those are the things that from as a developer as a, as a computer programmer that I've been trying to address and point out and bring to the forefront so that we have these opportunities to make alternative viewpoints and alternative perspectives to the way the computer has been designed to operate and what is there in within our control that we can change it to operate from a more culturally sensitive perspective. There was a paper I read about the decolonization of time. Uh, and it, it, I mean, if you really think about time in our society, uh, who hasn't heard of the term time is money, right? So the faster I can get something done, the more I can get done in a shorter period of time, the more money I can make because I can do it more often or I can repeat that process. But currency is not an indigenous, we don't care about currency in that way. Where the time, like, so we, we've commoditized time where time is bought and sold or traded. But that doesn't even come into play in most indigenous perspectives when you're talking about relationships or relationships with the land, relationships with our community, uh, relationships to ceremony. Ceremony isn't rushed through so that you can do more ceremony, right? So if you're sitting in ceremony, if you're doing, if you are in a sweat, you don't rush the sweat through so you can go and do other things in the day. There's time allotted. And that time is dependent upon other things. And there's natural variables, right? So um, time in that sense, we don't treasure time as a commodity. Um, and that is probably the biggest thing when it comes to time uh, and why time is viewed as being colonial is because it's been commoditized. And so anything that can be commoditized is inherently colonial in nature. And those are the structures that we're trying to... Uh, 
push against and say that, no, this isn't, we don't value time as a currency. Time is not a currency that is yours to give, right? That's what I would usually respond with is it's a commodity and commodity is, is a Western way of thinking. And if you adopt that idea, then you're not, uh, you're not honoring the relationships within your own culture. If you, if you belong to an indigenous culture, uh, those relationships aren't being honored properly. And that's why we resist or push against some of those structures. When I wrote my beating pattern maker, uh, I wrote it to be uh, a, a time saver. I, I, I didn't, there was a lot of decision making I was doing when I was beating it from just a picture uh, and trying to replicate it with beadwork, you know, so making decisions on color and placement um, and how to connect, you know, uh, what design, what path is the beadwork taking that I thought I could just kind of automate, give it to the computer, get the computer to create a pattern for me. And so it really started with that very colonial idea of how do I make myself more efficient to accomplish more in this time frame? And uh, that evolved. So as I was beating and I started to think about these structures and it's like, well, it's not reflective of my culture. And it would be interesting to know what programming, you know, what this pattern maker would look like if I changed the loop. So the loop would go left to right, right? It goes X equals um, from one to 10, for example. It, it starts at one, goes to 10, and then goes to the next row, goes from one to 10, one to 10, one to 10. So it goes in this left to right manner. But when I'm beating, and if I was beating it in rows like that, I don't get to the end of the row, cut my thread, and go back to the beginning and do it over again. I just move down a row, go back the other other way, right? Keep that thread kind of continuous. So I went back to my code, and I rewrote my code to do that. So I went 1 to 10, and then the next iteration went from 10 to 1, and then the next iteration went 1 to 10. So it did that connection of going to the end, the next row down started at the end, looked its way backwards to the beginning. Um, and then, you know, that took it one step further going, this would be really great if I could actually code this in my language, because now I'm tying my language to those instructions and the language gets in the computer. And, you know, I've heard elders when we talk about like its own in language, you know, I go to, I studied uh, Cree, uh, Nahia Wewen at uh, University of Blue Quills in St. Paul in Alberta. And you'd always hear elders or the teachers or instructors talk about our language as being medicine and it is a ceremony so language has these very deep cultural connections and if i can use my language in the computer then metaphorically i'm making that computer uh, a part of my culture right the language is in the computer and those instructions are being given in the language then it would tie those things together so much better and that's why I ran into the problem with English. English being you know, the de facto language for computer programming, seemingly, um, that that makes that a challenge. And so I, I decided to make my own computer programming language that would allow me to use Cree uh, to program. But then I started. Then I, when I started that process, you realize that these structures like loops and uh, conditionals, in particular, when you translate the language. Uh, doesn't necessarily make sense. And so if I, I asked the elder, I said, you know, I'm trying to make these if statements. So I, I put it into a kind of a story-like manner. And I said, if it is nighttime, then I see the moon. If it is daytime, then I see the sun. And I asked them to translate that for me. And um, then I got the translation back. 
And when I read it and translated it, you know, literally from what they, how they interpreted it, um, it comes back as I see the moon when it is night. There is no if, right? I see the moon when it is night. There is no if and there is no then. So there's no um, consequence. There's no this one thing turns into this when this event happens. And so the, the language kind of falls apart because now I'm being given the result before the question. I see the moon when it is night instead of saying it is night when I see the moon. Right. And it is just the way the language worked out. And so I realized then I couldn't use if the, the conditional if statement as it exists as a logical construction in the computer is not how the language works. I then met a, a colleague of mine from uh, the University of Hawaii. I think she's at. Uh, and uh, they were converting the C-sharp programming language into Olelo Hawaiian. And they have the same issue. The if-then construction is not a construction of their language. So they had to come up with something else. And what they had come up with, um, they worked with community elders, and they said, you know, can we call this a river? So a river, they will offside, uh, take a river and branch it off to grow taro root and these little streams that, you know, run off beside the river uh, in Hawaii. And that was, that made sense, you know, culturally speaking, a, a branch uh, something that branches out like that, like a river, can go into these smaller streams, makes sense in you know the Hawaiian understanding of of that condition uh, or a condition statement. Um, water is very important to most native people here in Canada as well uh, in the U.S. So I adopted that same kind of idea, that metaphor construction of uh, waterways and rivers being conditional statements, and so. I went back and changed my conditional statements. There's no longer an if anymore. You start a river. Um, and when I did that, I realized that it circled all the way back to my whole idea of code being representing of a, a story, uh, which is like my life, you know, like I, when I talked about writing my daily routine as a program, I'm really telling a story about what happens in the daytime. I'm just telling it in a code formatting. So my, my programming language for Cree that is where it changed, uh, and I changed those ideas. So the, the ideas of loops are no longer loops, they're winters. We age uh, every winter, and we describe ourselves as how many winters old we are uh, in the community that I belong to. Just like in some southern tribal nations, uh, they describe how many summers old they are. And seasons can represent that you know, in, in multiple cultures in different ways. And We just happen to use winter here because winters in Canada can be pretty harsh, and uh, noting how many winters old you are means that you were resilient against the elements and, you know, you made it through harsh conditions yet another year. So, so it's a, a kind of a sign of strength and that you're capable of living in such a harsh condition and making it through that um, it's, a, it's, it's a sign of achievement, right? So loops become winters. And so in my programming, variables then uh, I just made them ba uh, berry bags or medicine picking in, uh, containers. And so it's not necessarily a variable, it's a berry bag. And so you would go and you put the letter A into your berry bag, and then you would go on a river, and that river will branch. And at a certain point in the river, you're going to loop through some winters, right? And so when you read the code, it becomes this poetic, almost narrative of a life's journey. Right, and so the code itself is a is a story all on its own, independent of what actually it prints onto the screen. It's designed to create animated narratives on a screen, 
but the code itself tells a whole other story and it has this unique kind of narrative to it that is independent of the actual story it's telling. And that's where the change shifts, right? Where code no longer represents instructions to the computer, but it represents the cultural way of doing things and the way we transmit knowledge across generations and how we explain that through our language can now be encoded as part of the literal code in the computer. Uh, that's what I found as being kind of the most important. So digital beadwork is something, I guess, I don't know if I, I technically created it. My primary work that is uh, now as part of the Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Indigenous Arts Center archive is called Four Generations. And it was a video that is uh, was captured from 34,840. I, I can't remember that. It's the number of days that my grandmother lived. Uh, so there was 34,000 beads roughly that uh, were captured and it creates portraits of my grandmother, my father, myself, and my son. And those beads represent the knowledge. So as every bead is placed on the screen to develop the portrait, I thought of the beads as a day in the life of it. So every bead that you place is a day that you've lived, right? And they're all connected with this thread. So that thread is continuous and it connects each bead to the last bead. So every piece of knowledge you gain is just adding to knowledge that you've acquired. When you get to the end of your life and that knowledge starts to dissipate, or, or I don't want to say it, it never goes away, it gets transferred to the next generation. And so at the, the end of when, on the screen, when the portrait ends, it starts to unbead that portrait. So when my grandmother is complete, uh, it unbeads my grandmother and starts beating my father in her place with new beads. But those beads are really translations of the beads that were used to be my grandmother and so it represents that knowledge transference from one generation to another the beads always exist on the screen as an accumulative knowledge of those generations and then the same thing happens when it goes to me so when my dad's complete his portrait starts to unravel and be my portrait in its place and then the same thing happens to my son and when it gets to my son it circles back around to my grandmother so my my, my son and my grandmother ultimately connected and it's all about that relationship and kinship and knowledge transfer. So digital beadwork adopts a lot of these ideas of living metaphors and uh, the, continu uh, the continuance of that thread. So the thread is really important because it, it connects the beads together. And so you don't want to have a break in the thread. When I get to the end of a thread, when I'm beading physically, I tie a new piece of thread to that old piece of thread and that thread continues. I don't start beating in a new position. I try to keep that thread connected. It doesn't matter where in the image I am. The old piece of thread has to be connected to the new piece of thread because those beads need to be continuously tied to one another. It's a relationship issue. All right, issue. It's, not, it's a relationship thing uh, and that they represent a continuity to that. And so when I created my digitally beaded portraits, this is where that slowdown in time also comes in because I want the viewer who's watching this portrait kind of being made through this beating process, appreciate the time it takes to, to make. So in a digital version, that whole video is an hour and a half long. There's a half hour per, uh, or 20 minutes, 22 and a half minutes, I think, per portrait. So it takes about 20 minutes for my grandmother to, to be fully developed, and then 20 minutes for my dad, myself, and my son. So the whole hour and a half it takes to render all four portraits. In real life, that would have taken 
two or three weeks per portrait, right, to physically beat them. Um, so there's appreciation for the time. If that slowed it down any slower, nobody would stop to watch it, you know, in a, in a gallery setting. I tried to find a time that was interesting enough that you saw action and activity and was quick enough to to get, you know, enjoyment from without violating that concept of time and how precious it is uh, and how long it takes to actually produce these things. It's not instantaneous. We we expect an instantaneous payoff. I could actually have the computer produce those portraits in fractions of a second, but I didn't, right? And that's where that key idea comes in, is that I could let the computer do it on its, its terms, but I'm going to do it on my terms. And I want the viewer to understand that the reason why it's animating in this motion is because I'm recognizing that there's time involved and that that time is as important to generating that artwork as the bees themselves and as that representation of that thread. Not just indigenizing, but decolonizing uh, computer spaces, digital spaces are crucial, not just because you're giving voice and privilege to you know, cultures that are normally underrepresented usually have to sacrifice some of that understanding and adopt Western or Eurocentric worldviews in order to interact with computers or computing technologies. Uh, and we do it all the time with, I can't stand Facebook, for example, not because it represents anything bad. I have no way of understanding how to navigate it. And that's because it's driven by ads, it's driven by marketing, it's driven by money generation. And so I want to be able to open up an application and if I want to find a photograph, it should be easy to find a photograph. I cannot find a photograph that I'm looking for easily on Facebook. I used to be able to do back in the early 2000s. I can't do that anymore because it privileges other items and puts those to the top. So our technology platforms and the technologies that we create today depending on what it is, typically favor these Western ideas of being uh, money generators and how do we grab as much of your attention as we can because the more times that you look at it, the more revenue that's generated on the back end and then we can somehow funnel a um, commercial, right? It gets commercialized and so uh, commercially driven. So commercials drive, you know, that advertising um, drives the development of those technologies those are the hard parts to to get around which is why i encourage culturally relevant application development is not concerned with those ideas and those concepts necessarily so, yeah, i mean you know today's day and age if you're going to operate you know as a technology company you need some way of generating revenues and pay people to do the work it's just part of the way of doing business but to do that ethically and within cultural relevance is something that uh, i think Many people don't believe they can do it because of the way our, how would you say, uh, it, our economy is not designed to support those. You know, we have nonprofit organizations, but when was the last time you heard of a nonprofit game design company, right? It's very few, very rare. Um, and so those of us that want to get into game design, indigenous game design in particular is really good. You still have need a way people need to make a living. People need to pay the bills, right? Raise their children, raise their families, support their community. Uh, all that's money driven. And so there, there has to be a give and go. There has to be a trade-off, but that doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice 
your cultural teachings and your cultural knowledge in order to acquire those. So yeah, I absolutely 100% back individuals to think of their culture and the teachings that they have and integrate those in with their, you know, whatever it is they do doesn't necessarily mean have to be in technology or, or computing, but just in everything they do. If I'm going to write a programming language that uses Nehiawewin as its language, so as you code it, and I'm doing it in syllabic, so I'm using Cree syllabics as the programming language. Cree syllabics are known, you know, they translate into English as spirit markers. So they are inherently uh, spiritually relevant uh, part of our culture. If they exist in the computer and the computer has spirit markers in it, uh, as part of the language, and that language is medicine, you know, they, when we talk about languages being medicine, that makes the computer a medicinal tool. And so if I'm programming in syllabics, I'm practicing my language, I'm using my language, my heritage language, in a way that is meaningful to me, that in turn improves my connection to my culture and it helps me improve my mental state because I feel attached to syllabics differently than I am attached to the alphabet, you know, as a way of just communicating. And so syllabics in particular as being medicinal as a language that's in the computer, I think is, I, I absolutely see it like that. So when I'm coding, I'm no longer just instructing the computer. I'm actually interacting with my language just in a digital space, which is just another form of medicine practice, right? And, uh, and being aware of my cultural relationships and those connections. I've already talked a little bit about water or rivers as being conditionals and stuff, but what really started me um, and thinking about those things was smudging. And so if you're not familiar with smudging, uh, a smudge in, in my culture anyway, we uh, usually it's uh, a cedar or sweet grass or sage it's just a personal ceremony used to cleanse, right? And so you, you light it, you get the smoke going, and you bring it over your head, you know, bring it to your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your throat, your heart. Uh, and that's just to, you know, you want to clear your mind, open your ears so that you can hear effectively, open your eyes so that you're paying attention, clearing your throat so that if you're, if there's speaking, um, you're doing that in a truthful and honest manner. And then you know, your heart, so you speak and you're interacting with whatever it is you're about to do in relation to your heart and then your whole being, right? And so you're, you're invested now at that point. So this idea of cleansing was something that I'm like, you know, the computer does this too. So when you execute a program, one of the first things, you know, some of the first thing is it does is does some housekeeping. So it clears the screen, prepares the screen. So it's like clearing your eyes. Um, it empties out its memory, its cache, you know, if it has any residual from a previous runtime or something, it might have some data or files left over. So it gets rid of that, scrubs that out, so it clears its mind. It will reset any audio. If you're using audio like microphone or headphones, it sends a command to stop all functioning and then restart that functioning, right? So it's it's actively resetting the ears and the uh, and the voice. And that really gets down to the, the heart of it, right? So it's resetting itself as a whole computer, as an entity, is just a reflection of our body. And so the first function that you call in Achimo is Miyasuke, which is, uh, is smudge. You should call a smudge or uh, Tisaman. I think it's the other smudge, right? So one is just means uh, you smudge with sage uh, versus just smudging in general. 
So you have to call that. The program will not run unless you call smudge. And the smudge is more of a, in, in this context, is more of a token because the computer already handles all of these processes. You're metaphorically, though, smudging the computer as an instruction because it, it's a representation that follows the story. So if I'm going to tell a story, I want to tell, I want to smudge first and then tell that story just so that I can be as honest and truthful as possible. Same way the code has to operate. You got to smudge, then the computer has is prepared to tell the story that is the code that's going to follow, right? And so that's where that where I really started looking at cultural metaphors and their representation in the computer and what they mean and what they represent and making sure that those are true to understanding. And I'm not just, I'm not appropriating indigenous knowledge and, and calling it a computer function. That's not, you know, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is saying these things are equivalent. What the computer is doing is symbolically the same as what we do through this ceremony. And therefore it's important to include that as an instruction. I go, you know, hold on a second, let me do a smudge so I can get myself prepared. I think the computer should do the same thing. And if you're going to recognize that in code, it just also goes ties that back to code being medicine or language being medicine. So if, if our language is our medicine, then code is medicine. That medicine has to be honored. And that the way of honoring that is to smudge or include the smudge as part of that. And so that's probably the biggest or the the most wide thinking idea uh, when I look at metaphoric cultural representation as computational functions. That's the one that I think most people can identify with and understand. I do a lot of work in HCI, which uh, human-computer interaction. just means I, I'm interested in how we interact with computers. So everything from the pin pad they use at the bank machine uh, to the self-checkout you know, things that you use in the store, grocery store, you know, are they intuitive? Are they easy to navigate? How do we interact with them as humans? Uh, and so it's a human-computer interaction. Uh, I've started to think because I applied that smudge and the metaphors of living through my programming, I started thinking of the computer more in the kinship terms uh, as opposed to being an object, right? And so I'm not in a human-computer interaction anymore. I'm in a kinship interaction. And so I interact with the computer because I've changed the way the language works uh, or there are understanding of how we use language within the computer and be from that cultural perspective. You've formed a kinship with the computer. And that really just goes to a greater understanding of the relationships in, in our universe in general. So there was a, a book recently I was reading. Um, I've not done it yet, uh, but Heinrich Paus, uh, who's a physicist, is talking about this underlying relationship uh, within the cosmos, right? Like how our universe was created. That an atom, for example, that uh, you know, an atom in my body is connected, is physically connected some way to an atom on the farthest star at the other end of the universe. There's a relationship between those two atoms. Because ultimately, at one point, if everything was in a singularity before the Big Bang, all of these atoms interacted with one another. And so we have a relationship with every single atom in the universe. And I haven't gotten there yet, but from my understanding is, is that it, it is hopefully going to explain things like string theory or, or expand modern physics and the research that's happening in, in modern Western physics. And yet, a lot of these things that I was reading are inherently indigenous belief systems. <laughs> like, 
we already, I already have these ideas. Like I already know everything is, is interrelated. I can't explain why or how, because they're, uh, you know, our belief systems are, there are things that are knowable and things that are non-knowable from a human perspective, but the understanding that everything, absolutely everything that's living in the, in the universe is connected. And, you know, as Cree people, things that are living like rock and land, right? It's not just the land that's living, but the rocks. Rocks have spirit. From a Western perspective, rocks are inanimate objects. So this relationship of living and what we consider living or consider having spirit are interconnected, and it's universal. It's, it's universe-wide, which explains you know, the, the idea that an atom in my body can be related or know an atom billions of light years away totally feasible i i totally understand that why i understand it can't explain why uh, but that's an unknowable as far as i'm concerned right but it's those types of western science ideas that are starting to come up which are actually just extensions of um i guess ancient science like a monism i think is where it came from greek philosophy on a singularity and how things are related is how I interact with the computer. So I don't think of things in terms of the human computer interactive model anymore. I think of the computer interaction as being a kinship. And so the computer is just an extension of my being, just the same way that a paintbrush is the extension of an artist's ability to paint. That paintbrush is an object that's used to paint. That paintbrush becomes a part of their arm or a part of their body, right? It's an extension of who they are. And they have a relationship with that paintbrush just as we have a relationship with our computers and our technologies. And that's why it's one of the main philosophies that I think have changed in the way I view technology and computing and how it ties into culture why, and its importance to that as well. When somebody tells you that you can't do that computationally, so in a program, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Um, and, and I can prove to you that it it can work that way. I might have to exploit something within the computer in order to make it work, but I can make it work. That challenge of when somebody said you can't do that or it's not designed to do that, I take that as a challenge to attempt to make it do that, right? I want it to do this thing. And you're telling me it can't be done. I'm telling you it can't. Uh, and that's one of the things that I, I, um, I've just learned uh, over years of, of programming uh, and I've done it, I, I, you know, uh, I, I've been challenged to say we can't make this animation. This is back before animations on web pages was a thing, like 1997, 1996. Didn't have animation. You couldn't have an animated object on the screen. And I found a way to make it work through image manipulation. And uh, it was three frames, but it still it looked like something was moving. And a friend of mine who was also a computer programmer said, "You can't do that. It's not designed to do that." I go. But it clearly it can do that because I it's right here. It's on, I got proof. It's on the screen. It can be done. Uh, but eventually it gets patched, and then that functionality that I was exploiting doesn't work anymore. And then it doesn't work because it can't. It does. It's not designed to do that. So they they fix it so it doesn't. You know, have that ability. But that's that's the challenge that I I live by, and I I teach that to almost everybody I talk to. You know, when it comes to coding, is if somebody tells you that the, this can't be done or it doesn't work that way. Try to prove them wrong. I, I, I just, I live by that philosophy. I'm like, it, it can be. Everything can be done. It's just a matter of finding the right solution to it and being creative.
you can find links to John's work, including four generations, in the description. And for more knowledge and stories from STEAM professionals, check out the Root and STEM magazine at pingwa.com or more episodes of the Root and STEM podcast available to download on your streaming platform of choice.